The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. All right, so we are here to begin a new book study. I'm very excited about this because I've been wanting to do this book study with you guys for like two years since this book came out and I read it and was super excited. Um, so yeah, this book is written by one of the original authors. That's uh, E. Randolph Richards. He's one of the authors from the other book. And then the other person is named Richard James, which is not his actual name. Uh, he works in the Middle East. I think right now he's in Beirut, but he teaches church planters. Uh, and so he doesn't use his actual name because he doesn't want, uh, you know, any of those issues that church planters run into when planting in places like Beirut. Uh, yeah. You should have chosen a cooler name, though. <laughs> so we are reading, misreading scripture with individualist eyes. So to start off our discussion this evening, I'm going to write some words up on the board. And I want you guys to give me your thoughts and feelings about these words when I write them. All right? Not about my penmanship, about the words. Boo hiss, boo hiss. All right. The first word is kinship. Kinship. Just like what the word means to yeah. us, kind of? Yeah, like what is it? What, what comes into your mind when you think of the word kinship? Uh, uh, backwoods, maybe? Yeah, backwoods. yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. I, was, I was thinking he's like a toothless guy going, very, he's kin to me. Very kind of rural. Uh huh. Anne of Green Gables. Relationship. Relationship. Anne of Green Gables, yeah. Who's that? It may be kind of like the idea that's an outdated way of thinking, you know? Yeah, so it kind of, my it, it, it's kind of an antiquarian word, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's definitely not a word that comes up in like normal dialogue. You don't talk or about even like, just we're talking about like political issues on a large um, scale. The idea of kinship, yeah, I understand that has political meanings, but it feels like those are from a different age, kind of. Right. You know? Yeah, and sometimes the, yeah, it, it's it's most of the uses that you hear about it now are not in relation to like blood relations, but mm -hmm. in terms of different ideas or things that having that share stuff in common. Right. What about this word? Patreon. Or patronage. The opera. Hit the subscribe the opera. button. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, right? Patreon. I mean that comes from the, the yeah. same the same the same root, yeah. Uh I'll be honest. Like uh, kind of a negative connotation with like patronizing. Uh huh. Patronizing, yeah. The arts. The arts, right? A patron of the arts. It's the only time we really hear it. Anymore. Right? Before yeah, Patreon there's, there's kind a of a, there's kind like, of like yeah. a, a maybe like a bougie undertone to it. Like, oh well, that's kind of one of those you know, it's a rich people thing. Yeah, which is part of it. We're gonna we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna talk about that. Like, when that's we not get entirely in, untrue. It's not entirely untrue, but it, it definitely has a yeah. There's there's a connection there. What's the next one? Oh yeah, this one's a fun one. This is one that I don't think I've ever used. 
in any conversation, unless it was like the name of a business, brokerage. I think it like, like I could see there's a company that's like Allied Brokerage Limited or something like that. But other than that, I can't envision myself having used this word stock, ever. Stock market. Stock market. Yeah. I, I think right. like like kind of shady backroom deals. Shady backroom deals. I, I uh-huh. think of. Uh, Political thrillers or sci-fi games, you know, mm-hmm. information brokers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yep. yeah. I was just thinking of yep. info the shadow brokers. broker from Mass Effect. Uh huh. All right. Here's the last one. Are you ready for it? Yeah. Brace yourselves because it's a doozy. Uh, Shame. What comes into your mind when you see that word? Shame. I'm bad. I'm bad. Brene Brown. Hmm? Brene Brown. <laughs> Brene Brown. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard all these rants about the shame. Shame. Yeah, so I mean, all the stuff you've read. Kind of. I mean, it's a certain activist group to me because, like, trying to like, you can't do that because you're shaming this or that or the other. So yeah, there's a lot like, of language of shaming. shaming is always like a hyphenated yeah. word. It's like fat shaming or, uh, yeah, or all body different shaming. types of body shaming, body shaming or Karen shaming or. Everything you shamed. <laughs> I fence to all the Karens out there. Yeah, it's interesting. When these things pop up, there are... What I noticed from you guys is that none of the things that you said about these things were right. positive. No, I mean, they were all yeah, accurate things. Right? But none of them were... Well, but even in that sense, it was like it was in an antiquated sense. It's like, oh, well, kinship is precious. Like, by precious, we mean ancient. By ancient, we mean, you know, not useful. It's that doodad we keep on that antique bookshelf. Right. And dust off every now and then. Uh huh. <laughs> Patronage and brokerage. Like in the world that we live in, we're all about cutting out the middleman and getting rid of, you know, Nepo babies. And that's what kinship and brokerage and patronage are all about. <laughs> like we're trying to get rid of those things. And of course, you know, you mentioned, you know, in, in the political social landscape that we have, like shame is not something that we engage in at all. Well, it's not no, a, and if we, we do, we get shamed for it. And we get shamed, or shame maybe, shaming. Maybe an internet <laughs> thing where shame is used to like against Drew Barrymore or people like on the internet, right. you know. Right. Where it's a sort of a, a yeah, a version of like canceling people. Yeah. It's used to it's used to silence people. There the the section that they have about shame in in I think it was in this chapter when they started talking about shame, I thought it was fantastic, talking about the ways that like we in the West don't understand it, and we only use it wrong and sinfully. Um, it was, it, yeah, it was, it was really helpful. So, so those are key terms that are going to help us to understand the world of Scripture. All right, I say that because you know most of those are in some way like on the cover of the book. Um, they don't use pro- brokerage and that kind of that that kind of language specifically, but. Kinship and patronage and brokerage and shame. Those are core concepts that function in the world of Scripture. And it's interesting when we, when we think about it in those terms, because for us, those words don't have like a day-to-day usage, right? Most of the words that we use to describe them, with the exception of shame. Shame we experience, but we've already kind of talked about like the, the way that our culture deals with that is not in a healthy way. But the other words are just sort of 
they're antiquated. They're, they're, they're words from a bygone era, and they don't really have any, in, any importance or any relevance in the kind of world that we live. And the authors of our book are going to suggest that that is because the world that we live in is an individualist world. The, 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 they cite this fantastic study. There was a, it was a, there, there was a Dutch um, anthropologist who, who did a study about collectivism and individualism, and he created a... a uh, page 19. Uh, is it page 19? Okay, yeah. so he created a, a way for, for them to basically to, to chart out what, what that looked like. And he had to change the chart drastically because there were three outliers on, on the chart, and that was the U.S. and Australia and the U.K., and they were so far off the end of the chart in individualism that it made every other place on the planet look like a collectivist culture. So they had to adjust the chart so that there was there there was not it was it wasn't just that like on on one end of the spectrum there was collectivism and on the other end was individualism. It was like there was the entire planet and then three planets away there was America and the UK and Australia. Their their scores in individualism were that distinct from the way that the other 52 countries and cultures uh, were were being measured in in that particular uh, graph. Yeah, was uh, Canada of the Great North included in that? Because I don't weird. know. I I didn't look major, at you know Anglosphere country wasn't in there. Right. Yeah, I didn't look at the 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 report to see which which other ones. I wonder where New Zealand they, is. They just have such a small mm-hmm. population. Yeah. Well, yeah. New Zealand is basically Australia. Okay. <laughs> just don't tell <laughs> <me>. <laughs> yeah. You're all the same. So in 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 this book, we're going to be talking about those two terms, individualism and collectivism. That swam off the greater big. And it's useful when we're talking about these things to have working definitions of them in our minds. Uh, there, we'll we'll read the book's definition here in just a second. But the easiest way to think about individualism is that the highest value for for individualist cultures is liberty. All right, that's the, the single thing that matters the most is liberty. You, can, you could use other words like freedom or autonomy. You can throw any words that you want to at it. But this word right here sort of is a central focus point for understanding the individualist way of looking at the world. And should we really be reading that as personal liberty specifically? Yes, individual liberty. Yeah, yeah. the individual is is completely free that they have uh that their that their thoughts and their actions are arrived at completely independent of what the group thinks okay so we're going to put that word up there as well i know that they are sort of synonyms but liberty and independence think about think about liberty in in terms of um in terms of the way that you think about yourself and independence in the way that you behave all right so so the 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 choices and the thought patterns the beliefs that the individual has they come to on their own without any uh without any undue influence from outside sources okay that's what individualism is if you strip away everything else now they're going to give us a broader definition we'll read that in just a second but that gets us that that gets us started in this discussion okay so collectivism on the opposite side of that spectrum 
places its highest value on society. <coughs> so the highest value in a collectivist culture is the, is, is the community as a whole, okay? And so in a collectivist society, the needs of the group are prioritized over the needs of the individual because the, the core is for people to belong to the group, all right? So in individualism, we have liberty and we have independence. In a collectivist culture, we have society being the highest value and that is worked out by belonging, okay? We could, we could again, we could use other synonyms to plug in here. It could be uh, compliance, it could be, there's, there's any number of words that we could plug in here, but these, these words give us at least a, a framework for, for understanding this. Now, in the book, if you guys have your copy with you, you can open it to page 21, and they spend some time on page 21 talking about their definition of what individualism looks like. So this is the, the, the second full paragraph there. They say that collectivism and individualism primarily describe the way that people identify and think about the self. People in individualist societies, such as me and most likely you, think of ourselves as an individual person. I am me and the rest are they. Members of an individualist culture, such as me, think of my identity as comprising my individual attributes, personality traits, and what I have achieved in my life. And they go on to, ex to, to, to express kind of what that looks like when it's played out. Now, on the next page, they describe that in contrast to collectivism. This is about halfway through the second full paragraph on that page. They say, in collectivist societies, however, the individual is the sum of the community. The community identity, characteristics, values, and talents form the identity of those who all belong to that community. Collectives are defined by the things they share with others. The things such as shared blood, shared interest, shared history, shared land, shared loyalty, they define their core identity as being part of a group in distinction to other groups. So instead of, instead of in, the, in, in the individualist culture, you have I and you have they, in a collectivist culture, you have us and you have them. That's the way that a collectivist culture understands itself. So if you can think about it in those terms, I versus us, that's the, the core way that somebody sees themselves. Are, are they fundamentally a part of a group? Or are they fundamentally an individual of, uh, in, in and of themselves? And here's where it becomes a problem for us. Because even when I give that definition, I'm doing it in terminology from individualism. It's here's how the individual sees themselves. But that's, it, it, it's not a, an accurate way of describing the way that uh, the, the way that thought processes work in, in, a, in, in a culture where people don't have an experience of individualism. So we would sit back, kind of like we were talking about last week about reading scripture and, and inserting ourselves into the, the center of God's story. Uh, and, and the way that it just happens unconsciously. We just, when we think about the idea of reading the Bible, I'm like, oh, well, that's a thing that I do on my own while I'm alone by myself. And it's me and it's God and we're talking to each other. It happens unconsciously. And that's sort of the whole point of, of, this, uh, of, of this book is to recognize that there are unconscious ways that we are shaped by the culture that we live in and that because we have those unconscious ways of looking at ourselves and of looking at the world, what can end up happening is that we, we will read scripture and in reading scripture, we will drop in our own assumptions about what things are and what things mean and we'll do that in a way that 
changes what it is that the biblical writers are trying to communicate. All right. Now, one of the objections that people have, and in fact, I, I, I've seen this in many of the reviews about the book, is people say, that's not true about all collectivist cultures, and that's not true about all individualist cultures. They address that, though. They address that. In the, very, in, in, the, in, in the first few pages of the book, they address exactly that claim, right? And they have this fantastic analogy oh, about apples and oranges. Um, and that apples and oranges, we could all say, well, they're, but they're all just trees, right? Like, yes, they are all trees. But if you've ever spent time in an apple tree or around apple trees and then spent time around an orange trees, you know that these are fundamentally different. Everything about the ways that those trees tree is different from one another. They don't tree the same at all. And of course they don't produce the same fruit. But what I appreciated about this is that they took that analogy and then they pushed it even further and they said, but also there are different kinds of oranges and there are different kinds of apples. And that's true about individualism and collectivism. Individualism is not always this one thing. That's why I tried to use the broadest possible, I, I, I tried to use ideological concepts rather than specific examples because individualism is going to look different because those trees look different. It, it's going to look different in, in different parts of the country depending on what your, your background was or what the, what the community is like. Uh, you, you think about like the, the different ways that individualism works in, uh, in, in suburbia versus the way that it works in an urban environment versus the way that it works in a deeply rural environment. The, 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 the way that people are individualists is different now. Do they still believe fundamentally at their core in liberty and 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 independence? Yes, but it looks different. The way that it plays out is different, and that's the point that the authors are making that that this is that that this is broader than that. And so I've introduced a sociological theory um, that actually comes from uh, from anthropology, um, but I just want us to be familiar with this because this is this is helpful sometimes. Sometimes when we're writing books and when we're discussing things, sometimes when preachers are preaching sermons, it's easier to create two opposites and then to contrast them with each other. Um, and the authors point this out, but I want to reiterate this, that the book is not intended to be an East versus West discussion because that's not a helpful discussion. Um, they point out that this is not Western bashing. It's just saying that that the way that the world looks at things is, is different from one place to the next. There's a, there, there's a useful way of thinking about this that gets us out of those, those binary restrictions and puts it on, on, a, on, on, a, on a broader scale, and it's called the grid group theory. If you guys want to read about this, you can absolutely do that. I've used the absolutely easiest, most accessible <laughs> language that I can because they, because it's a it, it's a it, it's an academic theory and so there's lots of really specific academic language that goes into this but if you think about this in terms of rules and relationships which we talked about uh of a couple of weeks ago when we were revisiting misreading with western eyes that that there are that that in an individual culture you will find uh, a culture that leans uh, more heavily on rules or less heavily on rules. And you will find cultures that lean more heavily on relationships and less heavily on relationships. And when that happens, they produce different kinds of fruit. So in, in this, so in, in this we have, we have our, our X, Y axis, okay? And in each of these sort of quadrants, you're gonna find people generally, again, re remember this is, a, this, this is a spread of possibilities, not, not single like definite things. Um, 
But in this, you're going to find uh, people that are really heavy on rules and really light on relationships. So, so they believe in a world that functions in one particular way, and it does that in spite of everything else that happens around it. Um, and so what, that, what, what the, the, the authors of this theory call that is, is fatalism. Uh, an easier way of, of sort of understanding that. The determinists of like the 1800s and natural sciences. Yes, yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. Let's see. The, the French scientists, the, the easiest way to understand it is which cultures use seatbelts. Which, <laughs> there you go. Uh-huh. In South America, we very rarely do because we're fatalists. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so what that produces is apathy. They're like, right. it doesn't matter what yeah. you do. You can't fix it. You can't change it. It's just going to be the way that it is. That's, uh, that, that's life. And, of course, for the individualists, they don't believe in rules or relationships. They believe in autonomy and, and liberty and, and independence. And so we're just going to put the word liberty down there because it's, it's an easy one for us to sort of understand what it is. You now, the egalitarians destiny. are sort of your, like, classic... Western liberals, not liberals in like the political, but liberals in like the theological terms, all right? So they don't believe in the rules at all. What they believe is relationships, the way that we connect. And so what, what they're interested in is equality. They want to make sure that, that everything is fair everywhere across the board all of the time, that there's never, there, there's, there, there's never a, a way that things are applied. And again, there's a range, range in all, in, in, in all of these different quadrants. And then, of course, there are the hierarchists. And the hierarchists are about all the rules and the relationships. And so their fundamental core value is, is about unity. Now, the grind group theory, the, I'm sorry, the grid group theory includes this area of common ground where there is space in between this where some groups function in all of these spaces. And there's a little bit of it here and a little bit of it there. So what I appreciate about this is that rather than putting everything on one line and just sort of saying, you know, you have... The whole world is over here, and then these three countries are over here. It's like, well, I think that there's more flavor to that. And I think that that would have been helpful in, in the book. This, this is my one critique of the book. I think that the, that the East-West polarity, is it, it's hard not to see that as East good, West bad. It's hard not to hear that. I understand that they don't believe that, that that's not what they're trying to say, that they don't have any intent in that coming across, but it still kind of does. It, you know, it, yeah, it, it still kind of does. It also feels kind of like a rehash of the East versus West from literally the previous book. Yes, yes, exactly. So what I like in the preface is that they, 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 they're very clear on the very first page about saying this, that there is plenty of room around God's table for all of us and that every believer deserves an equal seat at the table which is a very individualist, <laughs> egalitarian way of thinking about it. But, <laughs> but I like that point, this, this idea that it's not about saying that the way that the biblical authors believed in something was right and the way that modern readers believe in it is wrong or the way that the, the Western readers believe is wrong and the Eastern readers are right. It's saying that all of these different groups are encountering God within their own context and that the biblical record is for us an example of what it looks like when God enters into the midst of human relationships. What does it look like when people gather together and pursue God? And the, and, and the Bible is there to be that presence, God's presence in the midst of God's people. And so it has this ability to draw us together. The point of the book is not for us to create like 
new categories for, for pushing people away. The goal of the book is to help us to stop misreading what Scripture is trying to tell us. So this is the, the end of the last full paragraph on page 5. This is what they write. The problem is not with the Bible. It was inspired by God and written by people in a culture. It was clear to the original audience, but we live in a different time, in a very different culture. There are cultural gaps between the biblical world and our own. We are puzzled because we don't have the right cultural pieces to put into the gaps. Worse, when we don't understand, we often automatically <laughs> fill the gaps by trying to squeeze in pieces from our culture where they don't fit. Recognizing these cultural gaps and the pieces that go into them helps us to understand the Bible better. It helps us to apply it to our lives and our culture better. And our hope is that this book will provide you with a few pieces of ancient culture to help you fill in some of these ancient gaps. That's the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to help us to understand what the, the, the world of the Bible looked like. And understanding some of those nuances it allows us to say, oh, I see that in this story, there's something here that I missed. And that's why it was confusing to me. And I rushed in to add my own ideas, my own assumptions, my own cultural values. And I dropped them into the story. And it just kept the story being confusing. And so then I devalue the story. We don't want to devalue the story. We want the story to have the, the, the value and the resonance that it has always had for God's people. So what does it look like for us to then pause periodically to read about what the ancient world looked like and to apply those things? Um, this book does an amazing job of that, especially in regard to the New Testament world. Um, there are some places in the Old Testament where it's, you know, it, it's, it's kind of hit or miss, and we'll talk about those when we get to them. Um, but the way that they apply, especially the concepts of of they're going to talk about brokerage, and it's just going to, your, your minds are going to be blown. It's so good. And it's things that we never understood. Like this, your salvation is brokerage. The relationship that we have where we are being brought to, into the Father's household by someone else, that's brokerage. And that's the way that most of the world still works. But it, in, in our world, we're like, oh, you got to get rid of the middleman. Like, the, the middleman is the one that we pray to every Sunday. That's the middleman. We don't want to get rid of the middleman. We, we want to invest ourselves in that relationship. We, we want to, to see you know, the Holy Spirit as, as the intercessor. We want to see the Son who brings us home to the Father. Like the, the, the whole point of this is for us to see not, the, not, not to, to see less, but to see more fully God revealing God's self in the midst of God's word. And that's the whole point of, of this study and why we're reading this. So, for instance, they tell the story about Abraham and, and Sarah and Hagar and how weird that story is for us as, as Westerners. We read the story and we're like, so they didn't have kids and we don't understand how shame works. So we don't, that, like that doesn't, that, that just seems like, oh, well, that kind of sucks, I guess. You know, that didn't, it didn't work out for them. But, you know, then we move on. And, and then, and then, Sarah's solution is, well, why don't you sleep with my maid? And immediately we, we think, oh, okay. So, but hang on, Sarah. So your solution to this is to break the Ten Commandments? Because <laughs> they don't, don't have ten, that don't exist yet? <laughs> to break the Ten Commandments that don't exist yet for this God that's never talked to you before? Um, we, don't, we, we, we miss out on that because... We read this story, and without understanding how 
shame worked, without understanding how patronage worked, without understanding how religion worked in the ancient Near East, uh, we end up reading into the story and we draw the wrong conclusions out of the story. Why is it that Sarah gives Hagar to, to her husband and then when she gets pregnant, then Sarah gets mad at her husband about it? Like, did, do you, did you not know how this was going to go? No, she knew. And she was mad about it for reasons that make complete sense to the people who are writing the story but they don't make sense to us in our context. And so we have to pause and say, what are the gaps that need to be filled in? What are the places where we are misreading things? Now, there is a caveat on page nine, and I want us to look at it. They say, to help us grasp this, we're gonna do two things throughout the book. First, to try to see, I'm sorry, first to try to help you see how these aspects of collective culture work we're going to bring illustrations from how people live and think in collective cultures today. We will share examples from South American, Asian, and most often Mediterranean cultures. But we are not suggesting for a moment that these cultures are somehow the same as the biblical world. There are many differences and we cannot simply read the Bible on the basis of how collectives think today. We're wary of people simply reading modern Middle Eastern cultural values into the biblical text saying, oh, that's what Paul meant. Sometimes a modern collective pattern seems to have ancestors in the biblical text, but often it does not. So perhaps there is a parallel, but we should not simply assume it. You will see where, where we, that when we exegete, explain the biblical text, our exegesis comes from standard hermeneutics. Those are methods of interpretation, and it's based on what the texts say. We use stories from the culture around the text at times to help explore what's meant by, what, by what's being said. So they're going to share stories about how some of these concepts, kinship and patronage and brokerage and shame, how those work in the cultures that they've been a part of, the non-Western cultures that they've been a part of. But their suggestion is not, this is also how it works. 2,000 years ago in, in one part of Palestine and or the Mediterranean region. They're not saying that. They're saying this will help us to understand that when people exist only in a collectivist culture, the way that they see themselves, the way that they see their relationships with each other is fundamentally different than the way that we do in the culture that we find ourselves. So we've got a few minutes left, and I'm interested to hear what your thoughts were on their explanation for the story of Joseph. I, I, I loved that. I mean, there, there was some of that in your sermon last week too. I, 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 yeah, I did that. a little, but, I, I, I teased some of it, but um, not, not, not the good parts. But, but <laughs> I, I skipped the good parts. I was like, no, no, you guys can read about it. We'll yeah, find yeah, out. Uh, but I, I, uh, I, I loved it. I mean, I, uh, I specifically the, the part where he brings out the idea of um, Joseph being chosen as the heir and, yeah. and then the brother's like, what happens when this guy takes over? Like, uh, and putting it that way, I was like, you know, it's actually, you know, like you can, I can kind of, I can understand, I can see where they're coming from. I mean, uh -huh. who knows this this crazy guy who's saying they're all gonna like when he says that they're gonna bow down to him and like that's not just like some weird bratty thing. He's right. like, this is the guy that's gonna be in charge. Uh -huh. So like, what does that mean? And, you know? and and one of the things I was listening to an interview with uh, with with Randy Richards, who's one of the authors. And he points that out and is talking about that section. He's like, in, in the ancient world, most of the time, this is, we're, we're, we're painting with a broad brush, but most of the time, two-thirds of the estate went to the oldest brother. 
and then the other third of the estate was divided up among all of the remaining siblings. So when Joseph takes the second youngest son and elevates him to the firstborn, which makes complete sense given the kind of person that Jacob was, because Jacob doesn't have any value whatsoever on on he's inheritance or right he's real low on the rule chart over there in our in our grid group well, i mean he kind of did it himself with his brother Esau. exactly yeah like yeah, this is this is the him. way he's been this whole time he's he, he doesn't he, he doesn't engage with that so when he elevates this younger brother what he's saying is that all of my estate is going to go to this one and then the whatever is left over is going to be divided up among the other 11 of you by him He's going to divide it up among the other 11 of you. And he, he said something in that moment that, like, changed the way that I understood the story. He said, what would you do to make sure that your children had food and a place to sleep at night? Yeah. And I was like, I mean, they didn't kill him. Suddenly, suddenly, like, that <laughs> happens. You're like, oh, they didn't, and they didn't kill him? They just sold him off to some guys. I love, oh, the, I love the food whoa. that they had in there. Like, yeah, and in some of the uh, Second Temple Jewish traditions, it's like they used the money that oh, they I got sure from selling yeah. off to support their families. To support their families, they used yeah. that money to yeah, buy to too. buy shoes for their kids. Wait, wait, when you yeah. first said, like in, in many cultures, they would initially say, "Well, it was obviously Jacob's fault." Mm -hmm. right? but that, I was, my first thought was, "Well, it was." Partially his fault, but it wasn't all his fault. But then as I kept reading the explanation, I was like, actually, you know what? Like I, th I, th I think it is mostly his fault. <laughs> yeah, well, he really created the situation. Uh -huh. And I appreciated the, the, the way that they described mm. the interactions in Potiphar's house. Um, the, the, the idea that like there is some stark racism. And they connected it to the, to, to the rise of the Hyksos, which I thought was... You know, because because I'm I'm a history nerd, I thought that, that was fascinating, because I hadn't made that connection. But the connection is there in the text. The trouble is, and they they talk about this in one part. What was that? They're talking about the way that people tell stories. That some people are high detail, and some people are some culture groups are low detail. And so the low detail oh, the cultures, high context, the high context. context, yeah. So the the low context just assume that you know what they're talking about, and so they go on with it. And I say that because I'm beyond high context. Like I stop stories in the middle so I can give you the background because I don't want anybody to get like left behind or confused when I'm telling a story about while something. While the movie's still going. Well, all right, but let me back well, up. Emily holds a remote while the movie's still going. Just pause it. If you're going to talk, pause the movie. Stupid stories. <laughs> but I loved that that they, they had that little background. But, but thinking about what Joseph, like actually holding Joseph accountable for the words that he speaks to other people, right? Like the, the, the wife of the household, the, the matriarch of the household comes to him. And the thing that he says to her is, my master, my master has put me in charge of everything that he has and has given me responsible over everything except for his wife. You know, like, like he uses this demeaning language toward not just the rest of the slaves because he's also a slave, but he demeans like the lady of the household. Like the, the, the way that he thinks about himself is so puffed up and so elevated. And because I read this in sort of that, you know, American mm -hmm. self-made man story narrative, it has never occurred to me to like pay close attention to the way that he talks. There's nothing in the text that suggests that God gives him this dream. It's just that he has a dream, and then he goes out in the field while he's checking up on his brothers to tattle on him again. 
And we uh, can also read it as Joseph and Potiphar by themselves in a room, mm -hmm. because that's where a woman would go to seduce a man, who's, mm -hmm. you know, often private somewhere. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I thought that was fantastic. I, I was I was really intrigued by that by, by that detail. What other things? Did you and guys then that the, the the true celebration is not when Joseph becomes second mm. to Pharaoh, it's when Jacob and all of Joseph's family right. come to Egypt. Mm -hmm. He brings them to Egypt and puts them in the best part of uh, of Egypt, the and the, takes the, care of the them fertile valley. Yeah. Instead of and be doing what he's supposed to do as the heir, right? Rather than being, mm -hmm. he yeah he becomes the true heir. And oddly enough, the dream works out. The dream works out. Like his brothers do bow down before him, but not because he's awesome, but because they because that's the way that the the, the dream worked out. And in the end, he also receives the double portion um, because both of his his two sons become independent tribes among the people of Israel and it's worth noting that one of the one of his sons is Ephraim and the tribe of Ephraim is given a section of land where Bethel and Shechem are and so they're they're central to the worship of, of God but they're also given this other little parcel of land where their mother is buried and it's right in the middle of Judah so Judah owns the territory around and south okay. of uh, Jerusalem and there's this tiny little area on the on the way from Bethel down to the the main road where where she's buried and the town is Bethlehem like they they own this one little spot which is where we get that word Ephratha from in in our you know Christmas readings that we read every single year you know you o Beth Bethlehem Ephratha like it's connected originally to this to, to this little this little bitty holding that belongs to the tribe of Ephraim so the so the story of the Messiah is being traced all the way back through the story, but not because Joseph was special, but because Joseph chose to stop being special and instead being a servant. Like he becomes the true older brother that Jesus is later going to tell, uh, you know, tell a story about while he's while, while he's wandering in the same places. I also like in way the guy, uh, the authors put it, with um, the. Uh, the whole interaction with Potiphar and everything where uh, you know he was really furious at what happened mm -hmm. and you know beforehand I read it as you know furious at his wife mm. and here it's like no, he was he was furious at the situation because it caused him to lose face no matter what he's right. losing his best retainer or his wife mm -hmm. or his and, and his estate and his estate yeah. And so he's like, he's screwed no matter what. Mm -hmm. So he puts Joseph in his place because, you know, the idiot shouldn't have been that arrogant. Mm -hmm. Right, because, he also because puts, he's got fault. He also puts his wife <laughs> in his place, in her place, because he puts Joseph in a place where if he stops being arrogant, he can be elevated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And he also doesn't kill him. He also doesn't, he doesn't kill, kill him. him. Yeah. Once again, <laughs> yeah. He could have just killed him, just like the brothers could have just killed him, but they didn't. They just moved him to yeah. a different place where he could have yet another chance to repent and come to his off. senses. Just stop mouthing off. <laughs> I, uh, and for me, with the story surrounding his brothers specifically, mm -hmm. I always read that story as like, okay, this is why you know you shouldn't be envious. Like his brothers were envious mm -hmm. of him, and so out of envy, 
they beat them up, mm -hmm. threw them in the ditch, and then sold them into slavery. Right. Whereas now, Should after reading, uh, after reading this right here, it was... Um, oh, yeah, but where more than anything else, it's, you know... Of course, looking back after you know after having the teachings of Jesus and everything, mm -hmm. really, if you're to take a, a moral from what the brothers did, it's don't respond to evil with evil. Yeah, exactly. So it, it seems like Jacob just never learned a lesson ever in his whole life. Never in his whole life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that guy, that guy's getting increasingly unlikable. <laughs> He's getting worse and worse as he gets older. He never learned anything. It's like, but the one thing he did do, he always listened to God. God told him to do a thing. He did the thing. He, he did the thing. Like that's, like, which, to be fair, is more than a lot of other biblical figures. Take that information. At one point, he just kept punching God until, until God did the thing for him. Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> hey, you've wrestled with God. I broke your hip. But it's like, unless God specifically tells him to do it, he's going to make a he's mess out of it. He's just going to do whatever he wants to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for next week, we're gonna read <laughs> chapter one. So the next couple of chapters, I think, are focusing on the concept of kinship. Um, so this isn't gonna be the only time that we talk about kinship. I think chapter one and two are both about kinship. Um, but for next time, we'll just read chapter one. So I think that goes through page forty-nine. Forty-nine. Yeah. So it's just about twenty-five pages again, kind of like we did this time. So quick and easy. All right, well, let's close in prayer. All right, so we are here to begin a new book study. I'm very excited about this because I've been wanting to do this book study with you guys for like two years since this book came out and I read it and was super excited. Um, so yeah, this book is written by one of the original authors. That's uh, E. Randolph Richards. He's one of the authors from the other book. And then the other person is named Richard James, which is not his actual name. Uh, he works in the Middle East. I think right now he's in Beirut, but he teaches church planters. Uh, and so he doesn't use his actual name because he doesn't want, uh, you know, any of those issues that church planters run into when planting in places like Beirut. Uh, yeah. You should have chosen a cooler name, though. <laughs> so, we are reading, misreading scripture with individualist eyes. So, to start off our discussion this evening, I'm going to write some words up on the board, and I want you guys to give me your thoughts and feelings about these words when I write them. All right? Not about my penmanship, about the words. Boo hiss, boo hiss. All right, the first word is kinship. Kinship. Just like what the word means to yeah. us, kind of? Yeah, like what is it? What, what comes into your mind when you think of the word kinship? Uh, the backwoods, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Backwoods. Yeah, yeah uh -huh. I, was, I was thinking he's like a toothless guy going, very, he's kin to me. Very kind of rural. Uh -huh. Anna Green Gables. Relationship. Relationship. Anna Green Gables, yeah. Who's that? Maybe kind of like the idea that's an outdated way of thinking. You know? Yeah. It's, it kind of, my it, it, it's kind of an antiquarian word, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's definitely not a word that comes up in like normal dialogue. You don't talk or about Or even like, just we're talking about like political issues on a large um, scale, the idea of kinship. Yeah, I understand that has political meanings, but it feels like those are from a different age kind of. Right. You know? Yeah, and sometimes, yeah, it, it's it's most of the uses that you hear about it now are not in relation to like blood relations but mm -hmm. in terms of different ideas or things that having that share stuff in common right what about this word 
Patreon. Patronage. <laughs> I was just that, yeah. For patronage. The opera. Hit the subscribe the button. Yeah. Uh, uh, Patreon. I mean, that comes from the, yeah. the same the same the same root. Yeah. Uh, I'll be honest. Like, uh, kind of a negative connotation with like patronizing. Uh huh. Patronizing. Yeah. The arts. The arts. Right. A patron of the arts. It's the only time we really hear it anymore. Right. Before yeah, Patreon. There's, there's kind a of a, there's kind of like a, a maybe like a bougie undertone to it. Like, oh well that's kind of one of those, you know, it's a rich people thing. Yeah. Which is part of it. We're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that <laughs> when we get entirely untrue. It's not entirely untrue, but it, it definitely has a, yeah, there's there's a connection there. What's the next one? Oh yeah, this one's a fun one. This is one that I don't think I've ever used. Um <clears throat> any conversation unless it was like the name of a business brokerage i think it like, like i could see there's a company that's like allied brokerage limited or something like that but other than that i can't um, in- envision myself having used this word stock, ever stock market stock market yeah. I, I think right. like like kind of shady backroom deals shady backroom deals i, I uh-huh. think of uh Political thrillers or sci-fi games, you know, mm-hmm. information brokers. Right. Yeah. I, yep. Yeah. I was just thinking of yep. the, the shadow broker from Mass Effect. Uh huh. All right. Here's the last one. Are you ready for it? Yeah. Brace yourselves because it's a doozy. Uh, Shame. What comes into your mind when you see that word? Shame. I'm bad. I'm bad. Brene Brown. Hmm? Brene Brown. <laughs> Brene Brown. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard all these rants about the shame. Shame. Yeah, I mean, all the stuff you've read. Kind of. I mean, it's a certain activist group to me because, like, trying to like, you can't do that because you're shaming this or that or the other. So yeah, there's a lot like, of language of shame. shaming is always like a hyphenated yeah. word. It's like fat shaming or, uh, yeah, or all body different shaming. types of body shaming, body shaming or Karen shaming or. Everything you shame. <laughs> It fits to all the carrots out there. Yeah, it's interesting. When these things pop up, there are... What I noticed from you guys is that none of the things that you said about these things were right. positive. No, I mean, they were all accurate things. Right? But none of them were... Well, but even in that sense, it was like it was in an antiquated sense. It's like, oh, well, kinship is precious. Like, by precious, we mean ancient. By ancient, we mean, you know, not useful. It's that doodad we keep on that antique bookshelf. Right. And dust off every now and then. Uh huh. <laughs> Patronage and brokerage. Like in the world that we live in, we're all about cutting out the middleman and getting rid of, you know, Nepo babies. And that's what kinship and brokerage and patronage are all about. <laughs> like we're trying to get rid of those things. And of course, you know, you mentioned, you know, in, in the political social landscape that we have, like shame is not something that we engage in at all. Well, it's not no, a, and if we, we do, we get shamed for it. And we get shamed, or shame maybe, shaming. Maybe an internet <laughs> thing where shame is used to like against Drew Barrymore or people like on the internet, right. you know. Right. Where it's a sort of a, a yeah, a version of like canceling people. Yeah. It's used to it's used to silence people. There the the section that they have about shame in in I think it was in this chapter when they started talking about shame, I thought it was fantastic, talking about the ways that like we in the West don't understand it, and we only use it wrong and sinfully. Um, it was, it, yeah, it was, it was really helpful. So, so those are key terms that are going to help us to understand 
the world of Scripture. All right? I say that because, you know, most of those are in some way like on the cover of the book. Um, they don't use pro brokerage and that kind of that, that kind of language specifically, but kinship and patronage and brokerage and shame. Those are core concepts that function in the world of Scripture. And it's interesting when we when we think about it in those terms, because for us, those words don't have like a day to day usage. Right. Most of the words that we use to describe them, with the exception of shame, shame, we experience, but we've already kind of talked about like the, the way that our culture deals with that is not in a healthy way. But the other words are just sort of they're antiquated. They're 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 words from a bygone era and they don't really have any in any importance or any relevance in the kind of world that we live. And the authors of our book are going to suggest that that is because the world that we live in is an individualist world. The, 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 they cite this fantastic study. There was a, it was a, there, there was a Dutch um, anthropologist who, who did a study about collectivism and individualism, and he created a... a uh, page 19. A, is it page 19? Okay, yeah. so he created a, a way for, for them to basically to, to chart out what, what that looked like. And he had to change the chart drastically because there were three outliers on, on the chart. And that was the U.S. and Australia and the U.K. And they were so far off the end of the chart in individualism that it made every other place on the planet look like a collectivist culture. So they had to adjust the chart so that there was there there was not it was it wasn't just that like on on one end of the spectrum there was collectivism and on the other end was individualism. It was like there was the entire planet and then three planets away there was America and the UK and Australia. Their their scores in individualism were that distinct from the way that the other 52 countries and cultures uh, were were being measured in in that particular uh, graph. Yeah, was uh, Canada of the Great North included in that? Because I don't weird. know. I I didn't look major, at you know Anglosphere country wasn't in there. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I didn't look at the 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 report to see which which other ones. I wonder where New Zealand they, is. They just have such a small mm -hmm. population. Yeah. Well, yeah. New Zealand is basically Australia. Okay. <laughs> just don't tell us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're all the same. So in 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 this book, we're going to be talking like. about those two terms, individualism and collectivism. Prisoners that swam off the greater big. And it's useful when we're talking about these things to have working definitions of them in our minds. Uh, there, we'll we'll read the book's definition here in just a second. But the easiest way to think about individualism is that the highest value for for individualist cultures is liberty. All right, that's the, the single thing that matters the most is liberty. You, can, you could use other words like freedom or autonomy. You can throw any words that you want to at it. But this word right here sort of is a central focus point for understanding the individualist way of looking at the world. And should we really be reading that as personal liberty specifically? Yes, individual liberty. Yeah, yeah. the individual is is completely free that they have uh that their that their thoughts and their actions are arrived at completely independent of what the group thinks 
Okay, so we're going to put that word up there as well. I know that they are sort of synonyms, but liberty and independence. Think about think about liberty in in terms of um, in terms of the way that you think about yourself and independence in the way that you behave. All right, so. So the, the, the choices and the thought patterns, the beliefs that the individual has, they come to on their own without any, uh, without any undue influence from outside sources, okay? That's what individualism is if you strip away everything else. Now, they're going to give us a broader definition. We'll read that in just a second, but that gets us, that, that gets us started in this discussion, okay? So collectivism on the opposite side of that spectrum places its highest value on society. <coughs> so the highest value in a collectivist culture is the, is, is the community as a whole, okay? And so in a collectivist society, the needs of the group are prioritized over the needs of the individual because the, the core is for people to belong to the group, all right? So in individualism, we have liberty and we have independence. In a collectivist culture, we have society being the highest value and that is worked out by belonging, okay? We could, we could again, we could use other synonyms to plug in here. It could be uh, compliance. It could be, there, there's, there's any number of words that we could plug in here, but these, these words give us at least a, a framework for, for understanding this. Now in the book, if you guys, have your copy with you, you can open it to page 21, and they spend some time on page 21 talking about their definition of what individualism looks like. So this is the, the, the second full paragraph there. They say that collectivism and individualism primarily describe the way that people identify and think about the self. People in individualist societies, such as me and most likely you, think of ourselves as an individual person. I am me and the rest are they. Members of an individualist culture, such as me, think of my identity as comprising my individual attributes, personality traits, and what I have achieved in my life. And they go on to, ex to, to, to express kind of what that looks like when it's played out. Now, on the next page, they describe that in contrast to collectivism. This is about halfway through the second full paragraph on that page. They say, in collectivist societies, however, the individual is the sum of the community. The community identity, characteristics, values, and talents form the identity of those who all belong to that community. Collectives are defined by the things they share with others. The things such as shared blood, shared interest, shared history, shared land, shared loyalty. They define their core identity as being part of a group in distinction to other groups. So instead of Instead of in the, in, in the individualist culture, you have I and you have they. In a collectivist culture, you have us and you have them. That's the way that a collectivist culture understands itself. So if you can think about it in those terms, I versus us, that's the, the core way that somebody sees themselves. Are, are they fundamentally a part of a group or are they fundamentally an individual of, in, in and of themselves? And here's where it becomes a problem for us because even when I give that definition, I'm doing it in terminology from individualism. It's here's how the individual sees themselves, but that's, it, it, it's not a, an accurate way of describing the way that 
the the way that thought processes work in in a in, in a culture where people don't have an experience of individualism. So we would sit back, kind of like we were talking about last week about reading scripture and and inserting ourselves into the the center of God's story, uh, and and the way that it just happens unconsciously. We just when we think about the idea of reading the Bible, I'm like, oh well, that's a thing that I do on my own while I'm alone by myself, and it's me and it's God, and we're talking to each other. It happens unconsciously, and that's sort of the whole point of of this uh, of of this book is to recognize that there are unconscious ways that we are shaped by the culture that we live in, and that because we have those unconscious ways of looking at ourselves and of looking at the world, what can end up happening is that we we will read scripture, and in reading scripture, we will drop in our own assumptions about what things are and what things mean, and we'll do that in a way that changes what it is that the biblical writers are trying to communicate. All right. Now, one of the objections that people have, and in fact, I've seen this in many of the reviews about the book, is people say, that's not true about all collectivist cultures, and that's not true about all individualist cultures. They address that. They address that in the very, in, in the in, in the first few pages of the book, they address exactly that claim, right? And they have this fantastic analogy about apples and oranges. Um, and that apples and oranges, we could all say, well, they're, but they're all just trees, right? Like, yes, they are all trees. But if you've ever spent time in an apple tree or around apple trees and then spent time around an orange trees, you know that these are fundamentally different. Everything about the ways that those trees tree is different from one another. They don't tree the same at all. And of course they don't produce the same fruit. But what I appreciated about this is that they took that analogy and then they pushed it even further and they said, but also there are different kinds of oranges and there are different kinds of apples. And that's true about individualism and collectivism. Individualism is not always this one thing. That's why I tried to use the broadest possible, I I, I tried to use, ideological concepts rather than specific examples because individualism is going to look different because those trees look different. It's going to look different in in different parts of the country depending on what your your background was or what the what the community is like. Uh, You you think about like the the different ways that individualism works in uh, in in suburbia versus the way that it works in an urban environment versus the way that it works in a deeply rural environment. The, The 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 way that people are individualists is different now. Do they still believe fundamentally at their core in liberty and 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 independence? Yes, but it looks different. The way that it plays out is different, and that's the point that the authors are making that that this is that that this is broader than that. And so I've introduced a sociological theory um, that actually comes from uh, from anthropology, um, but I just want us to be familiar with this because this is this is helpful sometimes. Sometimes when we're writing books and when we're discussing things, sometimes when preachers are preaching sermons, it's easier to create two opposites and then to contrast them with each other. Um, And the authors point this out, but I want to reiterate this, that the book is not intended to be an East versus West discussion because that's not a helpful discussion. Um, They point out that this is not Western bashing. It's just saying that that the way that the world looks at things is is different from one place to the next. There's a there, there's a useful way of thinking about this that gets us out of those those binary restrictions and puts it on on a on, on a on a broader scale. And it's called the grid group theory. If you guys want to read about this, you can absolutely do that. I've used 
the absolutely easiest, most accessible <laughs> language that I can because because it's a it, it's a it, it's an academic theory, and so there's lots of really specific academic language that goes into this. But if you think about this in terms of rules and relationships, which we talked about uh, a, a couple of weeks ago when we were revisiting misreading with Western eyes, that that there are that that in an individual culture you will find uh, a culture that leans. Uh, more heavily on rules or less heavily on rules. And you will find cultures that lean more heavily on relationships and less heavily on relationships. And when that happens, they produce different kinds of fruit. So in, in this, so in, in this we have, we have our, our x, y axis, okay? And in each of these sort of quadrants, you're gonna find people generally, again, re remember this is, a, this, this is a spread of possibilities, not, not single, like definite things. Um, but in this, you're gonna find uh, people that are really heavy on rules and really light on relationships. So, so they believe in a world that functions in one particular way and it does that in spite of everything else that happens around <laughs> it. Um, and so what, that, what, what the, the, the authors of this theory call that is, is fatalism. Uh, an easier way of, of sort of understanding that Terminists of like the 1800s and natural sciences. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. it. Let's see. It's the, the French scientists. The, the easiest way to understand it is which cultures use seatbelts. Which? <laughs> there you go. Uh huh. In South America, we very rarely do because we're fatalists. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so what that produces is apathy. They're like, right. it doesn't matter what yeah. you do. You can't fix it. You can't change it. It's just going to be the way that it is. That's, uh, that, that's life. And of course, for the individualists, they don't believe in rules or relationships. They believe in autonomy and, and liberty and, and independence. And so we're just going to put the word liberty down there because it's, it's an easy one for us to sort of understand what it is. You now, the egalitarians destiny. are sort of your like classic Western liberals, not liberals in like the political, but liberals in like the theological terms, all right? So they don't believe in the rules at all. What they believe is relationships, the way that we connect. And so what, what they're interested in is equality. They want to make sure that, that everything is fair everywhere across the board all of the time, that there's never, there, there's, there's never a, a way that things are applied. And again, there's a range, range in all, in, in, in all of these different quadrants. And then, of course, there are the hierarchists. And the hierarchists are about all the rules and the relationships. And so their fundamental core value is, is about unity. Now, the grind group theory, the, I'm sorry, the grid group theory includes this area of common ground where there is space in between this where some groups function in all of these spaces. And there's a little bit of it here and a little bit of it there. So what I appreciate about this is that rather than putting everything on one line and just sort of saying, you know, you have the whole world is over here and then these three countries are over here. It's like, well, I think that there's more flavor to that. And I think that that would have been helpful in, in the book. This, this is my one critique of the book. I think that the, that the East-West polarity is, it, it's hard not to see that as East good, West bad. It's hard not to hear that. I understand that they don't believe that, that that's not what they're trying to say, that they don't have any intent in that coming across, but it still kind of does. It, you know, it, yeah, it, it still kind of does. It also feels kind of like a rehash of the East versus West from literally the previous book. 
Yes, yes, exactly. So what I like in the preface is that they, 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 they're very clear on the very first page about saying this, that there is plenty of room around God's table for all of us and that every believer deserves an equal seat at the table which is a very individualist, <laughs> egalitarian way of thinking about it. But, <laughs> but I like that point, this, this idea that it's not about saying that the way that the biblical authors believed in something was right and the way that modern readers believe in it is wrong or the way that the, the Western readers believe is wrong and the Eastern readers are right. It's saying that all of these different groups are encountering God within their own context and that the biblical record is for us an example of what it looks like when God enters into the midst of human relationships. What does it look like when people gather together and pursue God? And the, and, and the Bible is there to be that presence, God's presence in the midst of God's people. And so it has this ability to draw us together. The point of the book is not for us to create like new categories for, for pushing people away. The goal of the book is to help us to stop misreading what Scripture is trying to tell us. So this is the, the end of the last full paragraph on page 5. This is what they write. The problem is not with the Bible. It was inspired by God and written by people in a culture. It was clear to the original audience, but we live in a different time, in a very different culture. There are cultural gaps between the biblical world and our own. We are puzzled because we don't have the right cultural pieces to put into the gaps. Worse, when we don't understand, we often automatically <laughs> fill the gaps by trying to squeeze in pieces from our culture where they don't fit. Recognizing these cultural gaps and the pieces that go into them helps us to understand the Bible better. It helps us to apply it to our lives and our culture better. And our hope is that this book will provide you with a few pieces of ancient culture to help you fill in some of these ancient gaps. That's the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to help us to understand what the, the, the world of the Bible looked like. And understanding some of those nuances, it allows us to say, oh, I see that in this story, there's something here that I missed. And that's why it was confusing to me. And I rushed in to add my own ideas, my own assumptions, my own cultural values. And I dropped them into the story. And it just kept the story being confusing. And so then I devalue the story. We don't want to devalue the story. We want the story to have the, the, the value and the resonance that it has always had for God's people. So what does it look like for us to then pause periodically to read about what the ancient world looked like and to apply those things. Um, this book does an amazing job of that, especially in regard to the New Testament world. Um, there are some places in the Old Testament where it's, you know, it, it's, it's kind of hit or miss, and we'll talk about those when we get to them. Um, but the way that they apply, especially the concepts of, of what, they're going to talk about brokerage, and it's just going to, your, your minds are going to be blown. It's so good. And it's things that we never understood, like this. Your salvation is brokerage. The relationship that we have where we are being brought to, into the Father's household by someone else, that's brokerage. And that's the way that most of the world still works. But it, in, in our world, we're like, oh, you got to get rid of the middleman. Like, the, the middleman is the one that we pray to every Sunday. That's the middleman. We don't want to get rid of the middleman. We, we want to invest ourselves in that relationship. We, we want to, to see... You know, the Holy Spirit as, as the intercessor. We want to see the Son who brings us home to the Father. Like the, the, the whole point of this is for us to see not the, not, not 
to, to see less, but to see more fully God revealing God's self in the midst of God's word. And that's the whole point of, of this study and why we're reading this. So, for instance, they tell the story about Abraham and, and Sarah and Hagar and how weird that story is for us as, as Westerners. We read the story and we're like, so they didn't have kids and we don't understand how shame works. So we don't that like that doesn't that, that just seems like, oh, well, that kind of sucks, I guess. You know, that didn't it didn't work out for them. But, you know, then we move on. And and then and then Sarah's solution is, well, why don't you sleep with my maid? And immediately we, we think, oh, OK, so, but hang on, Sarah. So your solution to this is to break the Ten Commandments? Because <laughs> they don't have ten, that don't exist yet to break the Ten Commandments that don't exist yet for this God that's never talked to you before. Um, we don't we 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 miss out on that because we read this story and without understanding how shame worked, without understanding how patronage worked, without understanding how religion worked in the ancient Near East, uh, we end up reading into the story and we draw the wrong conclusions out of the story. Why is it that Sarah gives Hagar to to her husband and then when she gets pregnant, then Sarah gets mad at her husband about it? Like, did do you, did you not know how this was going to go? No, she knew. And she was mad about it for reasons that make complete sense to the people who are writing the story. But they don't make sense to us in our context. And so we have to pause and say, what are the gaps that need to be filled in? What are the places where we are misreading things? Now, there is a caveat on page nine, and I want us to look at it. They say, to help us grasp this, we're going to do two things throughout the book. First, to try to see, I'm sorry, first to try to help you see how these aspects of collective culture work, we're going to bring illustrations from how people live and think in collective cultures today. We will share examples from South American, Asian, and most often Mediterranean cultures, but we are not suggesting for a moment that these cultures are somehow the same as the biblical world. There are many differences, and we cannot simply read the Bible on the basis of how collectives think today. We're wary of people simply reading modern Middle Eastern cultural values into the biblical text saying, oh, that's what Paul meant. Sometimes a modern collective pattern seems to have ancestors in the biblical text, but often it does not. So perhaps there is a parallel, but we should not simply assume it. You will see where, where we that when we exegete, explain the biblical text, our exegesis comes from standard hermeneutics. Those are methods of interpretation, and it's based on what the texts say. We use stories from the culture around the text at times to help explore what's meant by, what, by what's being said. So they're going to share stories about how some of these concepts, kinship and patronage and brokerage and shame, how those work in the cultures that they've been a part of, the non-Western cultures that they've been a part of. But their suggestion is not, this is also how it works, 2,000 years ago in, in one part of Palestine and or the Mediterranean region. They're not saying that. They're saying this will help us to understand that when people exist only in a collectivist culture, the way that they see themselves, the way that they see their relationships with each other is fundamentally different than the way that we do in the culture that we find ourselves. So we've got a few minutes left, and I'm interested to hear what your thoughts were on their explanation for the story of Joseph. I, I, I loved that 
I mean, there, there, there was some of that in your sermon last week, too. I, I, I yeah, I did that. a little, I, I, I teased some of it, but um, not, not, not the good parts. But, but <laughs> I, I skipped the good parts. I was like, no, no, you guys can read about it. We'll yeah, find yeah, out. Yeah, uh, but I, I, uh, I, I loved it. I mean, I, uh, I specifically the, the part where he brings out the idea of um, Joseph being chosen as the heir. And, yeah. and then the brother's like, well, what happens when this guy takes over? Like, uh, and putting it that way, I was like, you know, it's actually, you know, I, you can, I can kind of, I can, understand, I can see where they're coming from. I mean, uh -huh. who knows this this crazy guy who's saying they're all gonna like when he says that they're gonna bow down to him and like th that's not just like some weird bratty thing. He's right. like, this is the guy that's gonna be in charge. Uh -huh. So like, what does that mean? And, you know? and and one of the things I was listening to an interview with uh, with with Randy Richards, who's one of the authors. And he points that out and is talking about that section. He's like, in, in the ancient world, most of the time, this is, we're, we're, we're painting with a broad brush, but most of the time, two-thirds of the estate went to the oldest brother. And then the other third of the estate was divided up among all of the remaining siblings. So when Joseph takes the second youngest son and elevates him to the firstborn, which makes complete sense given the kind of person that Jacob was, because Jacob doesn't have any value whatsoever on on he's inheritance or right. He's real low on the rule chart over there in our in our grid group. Well, I mean, he kind of <laughs> did it himself with his brother. Esau. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. this is this is the way he's been this whole time. He's he, he doesn't he, he doesn't engage with that. So when he elevates this younger brother, what he's saying is that all of my estate is going to go to this one, and then the whatever is left over is going to be divided up among the other 11 of you by him. He's going to divide it up among the other 11 of you. And he, he said something in that moment that like changed the way that I understood the story. He said, what would you do to make sure that your children had food and a place to sleep at night. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, they didn't kill him. Suddenly, suddenly, like, that happens. You're like, oh, they didn't, and they didn't kill him? They just sold him off to some guys. I oh. Love I love the food that they had in there. Like, yeah, and in some of the uh, Second Temple Jewish traditions, it's like, they used the money that oh, they got shoes, from selling yeah. off to support their families. To support their families, they used yeah. that money to yeah, buy to too. buy shoes for their kids. When, when he yeah. first said, like in, in many cultures, they would initially say, "Well, it was obviously Jacob's fault." Mm -hmm. I that, I was, my first thought was, "Well, it was partially his fault, but it wasn't all his fault." But then, as I kept reading explanations, I was like, actually, you know what? It's like I, th I, th I think it is mostly his fault. He really created the situation. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I appreciated the 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 way that they described mm -hmm. the interactions in Potiphar's house. Um, the, the, the idea that like there is some stark racism and they connected it to the, to, to the rise of the Hyksos, which I thought was, you know, because, because I'm, I'm a history nerd. I thought that was fascinating because I hadn't made that connection, but the connection is there in the text. The trouble is, and they, they talk about this in one part. What was that? They're talking about the way that people tell stories, that some people are high detail and some people are, some culture groups are low detail. And so the low detail oh, the cultures, high context, the high context. context. Yeah. So the, the low context just assume that you know what they're talking about. And so they go on with it. And I say that because I'm beyond high context. Like I stop stories in the middle so I can give you the background because I don't want anybody to get like left behind or confused when I'm telling a story about wow, something. Movie's still going. 
Well, <laughs> all right, but let me back up. Emily holds a remote while we're doing something like this. <laughs> Just pause it. <laughs> if you're going to talk, pause the movie. Stupid stories. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved that that they, they had that little background. But But thinking about what Joseph, like actually holding Joseph accountable for the words that he speaks to other people. Right, like the 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 wife of the household, the the matriarch of the household comes to him, and the thing that he says to her is, "My master, my master has put me in charge of everything that he has, and has given me responsible over everything, except for his wife." You know, like like he uses this demeaning language toward not just the rest of the slaves because he's also a slave, but he demeans like. The lady of the household, like the, the the way that he thinks about himself, is so puffed up and so elevated. And because I read this in sort of that you know American mm-hmm. self-made man story narrative, it has never occurred to me to like pay close attention to the way that he talks. There's nothing in the text that suggests that God gives him this dream. It's just that he has a dream, and then he goes out in the field while he's checking up on his brothers to tattle on him again. And we uh, can also read it as. Joseph and Potiphar by themselves in a room mm-hmm. because that's where a woman would go to seduce a man who's mm-hmm. you know off in private somewhere. Right. Exactly. Really. I yeah, I, <laughs> I thought that was fantastic. I, I was I was really intrigued by that by, by that detail. What other things? Did you and guys then the, the, the the true celebration is not when Joseph becomes second mm. to Pharaoh, it's when Jacob and all of Joseph's family Right, come to Egypt. Mm-hmm. He brings them to Egypt and puts them in the best part of uh, of Egypt, the and the, takes the, care of the them fertile valley. Yeah, instead of and be doing what he's supposed to do as the heir, right? Rather than being, mm-hmm. he yeah he becomes the true heir. And oddly enough, the dream works out. The dream works out. Like his brothers do bow down before him, but not because he's awesome, but because. They, they because that's the way that the, the the dream worked out, and in the end, he also receives the double portion, um, because both of his his two sons become independent tribes among the people of Israel, and it's worth noting that one of the one of his sons is Ephraim, and the tribe of Ephraim is given a section of land where Bethel and Shechem are, and so they're they're central to the worship of of God. But they're also given this other little parcel of land where their mother is buried. And it's right in the middle of Judah. So Judah owns the territory around and south okay. of uh, Jerusalem. And there's this tiny little area on the, on the way from Bethel down to the, the main road where, where she's buried. And the town is Bethlehem. Like, they, they own this one little spot, which is where we get that word Ephrathah from in, in our you know, Christmas readings that we read every single year, you know, you O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Like it's connected originally to this to, to this little this little bitty holding that belongs to the tribe of Ephraim. So the so the story of the Messiah is being traced all the way back through the story, but not because Joseph was special, but because Joseph chose to stop being special and instead being a servant. Like he becomes the true older brother that Jesus is later going to tell, uh, you know, tell a story about while he's while, while he's wandering in the same places. I also like in the way the guy, uh, the authors put it, with um, the uh, the whole interaction with Potiphar and everything, where uh, 
you know, he was really furious at what happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, beforehand, I read it as, you know, furious at his wife. Mm. And here it's like, no, he was, he was furious at the situation because it caused him to lose face no matter what. He's right. losing his best retainer or his wife. Mm -hmm. and, and his estate. And his estate. Yeah. And so he's like, he's screwed no matter what. Mm -hmm. So he puts Joseph in his place because, you know, the idiot shouldn't have been that arrogant. Mm -hmm. Right, because but he also because puts, he's got fault. He also puts his wife <laughs> in his place, in her place, because he puts Joseph in a place where if he stops being arrogant, he can be elevated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And he also doesn't kill him. He also doesn't, he doesn't kill, kill him. him. Yeah. Once again, yeah, he could have just killed him, just like the brothers could have just killed him, but they didn't. They just moved him to yeah. a different place where he could have yet another chance to repent and come to his off. senses. Just stop mouthing off. All right. <laughs> And for me, with the story surrounding his brothers specifically, mm -hmm. I always read that story as like, okay, this is why, you know, you shouldn't be envious. Like, his brothers were envious mm -hmm. of him. And so out of envy, they beat him up, mm -hmm. threw him in the ditch, and then sold him into slavery. Right. Whereas now, after, reading, after reading this right brother. here, it was, um, oh yeah, but where more than anything else, it's, you know, of course, looking back after you know after having the teachings of Jesus and everything, mm -hmm. really, if you're to take a, a moral from what the brothers did, it's don't respond to evil with evil. Yeah, exactly. So it, it seems like Jacob just never learned a lesson ever in his whole life. Never in his whole life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, guy, that guy, that guy's getting increasingly unlikable. <laughs> He's so just getting he, worse and worse as he gets older. He never learned anything. It's like, but the one thing he did do, he always listened to God. God told him to do a thing. He did the thing. He, he did the thing. Like that's, like, to be fair, is more than a lot of other biblical figures. Take that information. At one point, he just kept punching God until God did the thing for him. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> hey, you wrestled with God. I broke your hip. But it's like unless God specifically tells him to do it, he's going to mess. Gonna make a he's mess. He's just going to do whatever he wants to. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. What a guy. Yeah. So for next week, intro. we're going to read chapter one. So the next couple of chapters, I think, are focusing on the concept of kinship. Um, so this isn't going to be the only time that we talk about kinship. I think chapter one and two are both about kinship. Um, but for next time, we'll just read chapter one. So I think that goes through page 49. 49. Yeah. So it's just about 25 pages again, kind of like we did this time. So quick and easy. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored. Hope with
earth our Father is restored.